everyone. I am Rhea Palombini with the IEEE Standards Association, and this is our third in the series of our IEEE Blockchain Podcasts. I'm here today with Alan Kahn, counsel with Steptoe & Johnson LLP and co-chair of the firm's blockchain and digital currency practice. Alan advises clients on cybersecurity, blockchain, and distributed ledger technology issues and national security and emerging tech issue. He also serves as a counsel to the Blockchain Alliance. Hi, Alan. Welcome. Thanks, Maria. Glad to be here. So, Alan, can you tell us a little bit about the Blockchain Alliance, what, what kind of work you guys are doing there? So the Blockchain Alliance is an organization that was formed uh, by the Chamber of Digital Commerce together with Coin Center. Uh, and administered by Steptoe and Johnson. And its purpose is really to provide a forum for the emerging blockchain and digital currency industry to engage with law enforcement and regulators, really to help the agencies and the companies uh, put names to faces, uh, to understand what each other do, um, and to work jointly to help eliminate uh, criminality and malfeasance on the blockchain. Excellent. So I've seen the Blockchain Alliance. You guys have some really great organizations that have joined on. Yes, we have great companies uh, who uh, are members of the Alliance, and we have uh, a number of participating government agencies, all of whom uh, are interested in the technology, want to know more, and are interested really engaging in engaging with the industry over some of the challenges that, that everybody faces. Awesome. It's a great organization. So tell us a little bit about how your work has evolved in the last few years, advising clients on, you know, rather young emerging technologies such as blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. Sure. So when we started counseling clients probably about two years ago, it was soon after I left uh, government and soon after my, my colleague uh, Jason Weinstein, who serves as the director of the alliance, left government as well, uh, really, the questions were very much about uh, currency applications, about cryptocurrency, about uh, different, use, different uses of currency, and then some of the regulatory regimes that were attaching to cryptocurrency. There were a lot of thoughts and concepts about how to use the underlying blockchain technology in a number of different applications, but they were really just that. They were concepts that were leading to pilots, that you could envision the issues uh, coming, but they weren't here yet. Now, uh, we speak with companies every week that are, uh, you know, that are looking at different applications for the technology, whether that's in financial services, whether that's in supply chain, whether that's in applications like identity, payments, uh, and whether that's in a public environment, uh, trying to uh, build applications on top of the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum, uh, or in private uh, permissioned environments, either in an enterprise environment uh, or elsewhere. So it's really, things have really taken off uh, over that period, and it's, a, it's just a really exciting and dynamic area to be in right now. Definitely. So like you mentioned before joining Steptoe, you had a successful career working in government organizations, including the Department of Homeland Security. So now you're in the private sector and you're advising on similar issues. My question to you is, is what do you consider the real opportunity with blockchain in dealing with issues around the growing concern on national cybersecurity and the policy that needs to address it? Well, I hope you were correct that, that my career working in government uh, was at least somewhat successful. Um, <laughs> 
really what's been nice on the outside uh, through the Blockchain Alliance and elsewhere is to be able to continue to bridge that knowledge and education gap back to, uh, to government, uh, to agencies in the U.S. government, at the state level, uh, internationally, uh, to, help, uh, to help really bring that education and knowledge of the platform. One of the things that we always stress uh, and that more and more government agencies are becoming interested in are exactly, as you said, these opportunities for blockchain in addressing challenges around cybersecurity, uh, around data integrity, uh, around identity validation, around the provenance of goods uh, in supply chains. These are not just challenges for individuals or for financial services institutions or for other types of, uh, of private sector entities. These are challenges for government as well. And so uh, it's very exciting to be able to work with, uh, with the government on a technology like blockchain where, you, number one, you really have security and resilience built in by design. You have encryption and cryptographic proofs helping to secure uh, both the, uh, the data itself as well as uh, to achieve consensus around, uh, around the transactions and, and ultimately the ledger. And you also have an ability to look at uh, a technology that can help bring higher data fidelity and data integrity uh, to things like identity validation, to things like customs inspections around goods, and other types of things that government does day in, day out that could be facilitated by blockchain technology in a way that helps the government agencies, that helps private sector entities that deal with government agencies, whether that's shippers or others, uh, and that helps the individual person uh, as a traveler, uh, as a, a recipient of services, and as a taxpayer. Absolutely. I think, that, I think those are all really great points. So let's get to the reason why I've asked you to join me on this podcast, the legal side of smart contracts. A couple of weeks ago, we had a podcast on the business application. So today I want to get to the legal side. So here's the big question I often hear. Are smart contracts legally binding? <laughs> well, I wouldn't be a very good lawyer if I didn't answer that with, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you know, a contract is really uh, a meeting of the minds between, you know, one or, uh, two or more people or parties um, that's underpinned by some type of consideration uh, that um, an action goes in one direction in exchange for an action coming in the other direction. So if you think about it from that kind of fundamental perspective, really what smart contracts in their most basic form are supposed to represent is a digital instantiation of a meeting of the minds between two parties and potentially also the mechanism by which the actions pass in each direction. So there's no fundamental reason why a smart contract should not be legally binding. Second, at the federal level, uh, you have the Federal uh, Electronic Signatures or eSign Act. Um, and at the state level, uh, pretty much all states have, have adopted some form of the Uniform Electronic Transactions Act, or UEDA. Um, and those two pieces of legislation talk a lot about digital signatures and other uh, elements of being able to recognize electronic versions of contracts or agreements. And as uh, some co my colleagues and I advocated in our recent Law Review article, we don't see any reason why those provisions of those statutes at the federal and the state level wouldn't make 
smart contracts that are entered into, you know, w- with those considerations in mind, uh, enforceable under those acts. But, you know, we really haven't seen uh, a lot of litigation around this issue. Uh, we are beginning to see states pass legislation basically stating that, that smart contracts or blockchain-based smart contracts are uh, enforceable under state law. But we're really going to have to see as the technology matures, not just are they enforceable at a basic level, but what are some of the broader issues around their interpretation uh, and their enforcement and, and other issues like that where most contract disputes end up focused on. So, so in essence, as the technology continues to emerge, so does, let's say, the, the legislation and the rulings behind it. Yes, and I think you'll see that um, that process of evolution and maturity, uh, and it's and it's basically a spiral development process in the sense the law develops spirally between individual cases and controversies and individual uh, judges and, and juries making decisions and uh, legislatures sitting uh, consulting with uh, with stakeholders and then looking to pass provisions into statute uh, that can then. Uh, control or influence the way that courts reach decisions in subsequent cases and controversies. Excellent. So more to come on that front. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So even in the world of smart contracts, no matter how smart we think they're written, there is the reality of disputes between agreeing parties. So how are disputes resolved when it comes to smart contracts? So it depends. People like to say that uh, smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts. Uh, And if you think about what we just talked about in terms of their most basic form, smart contracts are basically just digital instantiations of contracts that people have already agreed to. So there's a written document, and you are instantiating that in code um, and allowing the contract uh, to to execute uh, electronically rather than having it uh, execute manually. But there's also other types of smart contracts that are envisioned where there is no uh, there is no written agreement. There is just the code. There's the code of the smart contract, and that code is meant to be, quote-unquote, the law. People like to say, particularly non-lawyers like to say, that the code is the law as a way to think about um, certain types of smart contracts. But really, from a legal perspective, that raises it, – it's a question about um, jurisdiction, it's a question about how different laws apply to smart contracts, and it's a question of, around have the parties, in essence, agreed to an alternate form of dispute resolution than what would be available under the law of a state, for example. So a written contract may have a choice of law provision. It may say that this contract is subject to the, to the laws of state X or state Y. If it doesn't, it may be subject to those laws by, by the operation of a particular state's law. But a contract can also include a provision that says that we are going to agree to resolve disputes through an alternative dispute resolution. This is obviously um, a mechanism. This is, a, this is something that's referred to as an ADR provision or clause. And so uh, another question is basically, you know, when you are entering into a smart contract, whether you state that in a written document that's being uh, instantiated in digital form or whether that is actually instantiated in the code, are you agreeing to an alternative form of dispute resolution that would place you closer to something uh, that more reasonably approximates the code is the law? And what's the reach of that? How much can you agree to resolve 
through the smart contract mechanism itself, and how much is still going to be pulled back out of that and subject to laws of different jurisdictions. Mm. Very true. So recently, I read an interesting blog on the Steptoe blockchain blog. Um, it was a post by, I believe, one of your colleagues, Jared Butcher, about a technical malfunction with a smart contract that resulted in a $14 million valuation loss of the cryptocurrency um, Ether. Essentially, from what I ascertained, the software upgrade performed by the company had an error in the code and trapped the funds in the smart contract. And so this brought up the question of smart contracts present novel risks not associated with traditional commercial transactions. My question is, as a law firm, how do you prepare in order to better advise your clients on risks that are new to everyone in the space? Well, sure. And I'm, I'm glad that you've been reading the Steptoe Blockchain blog, and we recommend that all of your listeners uh, visit the Steptoe Blockchain blog. We try to post uh, interesting material there that will get your uh, uh, thinking going around a number of different uh, issues around blockchain and, and, and legal issues. This case and this, this issue really points up that same question of what, what are the remedies around blockchain-based smart contracts, um, and as opposed to what have you agreed to uh, by entering into the smart contract. And so what that means is for a law firm, you know, we need to be prepared to work much more closely at that intersection of technology an actual kind of company operations uh, and the law, in the sense that you know lawyers going forward are really going to have to be able to advise their clients not just about what is the law uh, and what might a written contract either cover or potentially not cover and leave open uh, for interpretation, but also how it would how would code execute, what will happen. Uh, if this provision of code executes versus that provision of code executes, um, and what are what remedies are available within the code structure, uh, and which are not, and so it places a real onus on the law firm to be much more technology savvy, uh, but also to effectively enlist um, both the technical personnel of the client, as well as uh, as other technical experts in structuring and understanding and interpreting uh, technological tools like uh, blockchain-based smart contracts. So this leads me to my next question for you is, how do you envision services of law firms changing with the introduction of smart contracts and future emerging technologies that essentially impact the legal side of doing business? Well, I think that, that all of these emerging technologies, whether we talk about blockchain uh, and blockchain-based smart contracts, whether we talk about uh, similar emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, or, uh, or unmanned uh, activities, quantum computing, um, each of these kind of new emerging technologies that are going to impact uh, the way that business is done going forward, it, it places an onus on law firms to change and adapt to that environment. Uh, much to everyone's chagrin, I don't think that lawyers or law firms are going away, uh, but they'll need to adapt to these new circumstances, and we'll need to uh, adapt to the new types of tools and technologies that become available. Uh, it was interesting to see that Thomson Reuters, uh, one of the biggest information provided, uh, providing companies in the world, um, has started to offer an oracle service for smart contracts. Uh, in essence, they will serve as your oracle for monitoring events and triggering 
the execution of smart contract provisions. Uh, Thomson Reuters also owns one of the largest legal database companies in the world. Um, and so it's not, not hard to foresee a world in which more basic legal interpretation is not only capable of being done uh, by machine, but, it's, but that clients expect that more uh, basic activity be done either by machines uh, or in a machine-augmented fashion. But that also places a higher premium on uh, human interpretation and human interaction uh, and the ability of lawyers practicing law not only to understand law, but also to harness the technologies that are available uh, in service of the clients and in service of making not only provision of legal services, but in helping clients resolve problems, which is what we really uh, are here to do. Uh, to be able to harness these technologies and work with these technologies in the most efficient and effective manner possible. So, so Alan, is there a possibility that, for instance, a law firm would even employ technologists to actually code and potentially write smart contracts as a service? Do you think that would be something that could be like a, an add-on value service in the future? I think that's certainly one way that technology could impact the, the, the practice of law. I think we have to see what that interplay is going to be between technologists and technologies um, and lawyers and others who are, who are trained in the, in, the, you know, in the formal practice of law. Very interesting. So for everyone listening, take note that law firms and lawyers do not go away with the birth <laughs> of smart contracts or other emerging technologies. Noted. Okay. So, Alan, we are a little bit out of time. I want to thank you for being here today and sharing your insight with us. Oh, no, happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Okay. And for everyone listening, thank you for joining us. Uh, just if you want to learn more about smart contract applications and IEEE essays work in blockchain, visit blockchain.ieee.org. And if you want to learn more about legal insights around smart contracts and blockchain, I definitely would encourage visiting the Steptoe Blockchain Blog at steptoeblockchainblog.com. Everyone, until next time, thank you.